Who do you serve? Uh, the, the same question could be asked another way. Who is the king of your life? We just sang a song, Behold Our God, about Jesus being king. Every person has a master who they serve with their life. Every person has a king sitting on the throne of their life who impacts their decisions and ultimately drives what they're living for. Mankind was made to worship and was made to serve. The question is, who or what are you worshiping or serving? Mankind was made to worship and serve God. But in our rebellion and in our treason, we we turned our back against the creator of the universe and decided to serve other masters. So what is to become of us? Is there any hope for us? This morning, we are going to begin our study through the book of Philippians. Um, And this little... New Testament letter is filled with good news for for sinners like you and me who have rejected God. In fact, even the the history of the beginning of the Philippian church is a story of hope uh, for those who are lost and serving another master other than God. Our God is a God who is able to save people while they're in active rebellion against him. God is able to change the hearts of sinners like you and me and draw our hearts to him so that we live a life of of obedience uh, to the true and right master, our Lord Jesus Christ, the true God and Savior. So as we begin Philippians, uh, we will see that a servant of Christ receives from the the Lord in, in three different ways. And what a servant of God receives also compels him towards action. So turn with me to Philippians. Start in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I ask that you would speak to us, that we would hear from you, that by your word our our hearts would be convicted, and by your grace and power that we would turn from our sin and and turn towards you. So I ask this in, in your name. Amen. So number one, a servant of Christ receives Jesus as a new king and forsakes his old kings. A servant of Christ receives Jesus as a new king and forsakes his old kings. So we all serve someone or something. And the life of Paul is a wonderful example of someone who goes from serving one king to the true king. Uh, and, and Paul, he knows this. And so when he introduces himself and Timothy, he says that they are servants of Christ Jesus. There's 
a number of ways that Paul could have introduced himself, but he chooses to go with servant. He chooses to identify himself as a servant of Christ. This is purposeful as he recognizes where he has come from, and he also is setting up the tone for the rest of the letter. Do you remember where Paul came from? Uh, how, How was it that he became a servant of Jesus? How was it they received Jesus as as his new king? The first time that we're introduced to to Paul, who also goes by Saul, is in Acts 7 with the the stoning of Stephen. Paul, he he stands and and watches in, in approval as Stephen is executed by being stoned. But, but Paul doesn't stop there with, with Stephen. We read in Acts 8, uh, verse 3, it says, But Saul, who, who is Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He's ravaging the church. Uh, imagine if someone was so zealous against the church that they were entering into our homes and dragging us out to be, to be killed or, or put in prison, this is who Paul is, what he's doing. He is zealous against the church, and he's committed to stopping the church, throwing Christians into prison, approving of their death. He's a slave to what he believes is right. Um, And in the midst of that, he's fighting against God, but he thinks he's actually serving God in in the midst of that. This is how confused we can become in our thinking. Uh, This is how deceived that we can be. We can believe that we are serving God while we're fighting against him, just like Paul. Paul continues in his ravaging ways, and in Acts 9, 1, uh, we read this. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul is on his way to Damascus in search of Christians to persecute. But God has different plans for the life of Paul. Uh, Jesus shows up, knocks him to the ground with a a bright light, and Jesus even speaks to Paul in Acts 9-4, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So already, right here, in this instant, we see that Jesus is giving Paul new directions to be obedient to. To go into the city and to, be wait, and to wait to be told what to do. We see Jesus is taking his rightful place of authority in, in Paul's life. Jesus is showing Paul who his true king is, and that is 
is Jesus Christ. Jesus has a plan for Paul. And Jesus tells Ananias, who, uh, the, the man who later speaks with Paul, Jesus tells him that Paul is a, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. This plan of God is important, especially as we consider the study of Philippians. At the moment of of Paul's conversion, he began to follow the true and right king of his life, Jesus, rather than following after his own zeal for what he believed to be right. So what about you? Who are you following? Who are you taking commands from? Who are you obeying? These are all questions that help identify a king or authority in your life that is driving the way that you live. Oftentimes, if if we're honest, the answer to those questions is that we're following ourselves. We are taking commands from ourselves obeying our own wants and our own desires. Oftentimes, it's, it's us who sits on the throne of our own life. And this is to be self-centered. Uh, this is to be proud and thinking that we have all the right answers about everything. Jesus sets us free from our sins so that now we're free to be obedient to Christ. And Paul clearly presents this in, in Romans 6, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. The the call to follow Jesus is a a call of humility. Uh, Jesus exposes the sin that's in our heart. Uh, Jesus shows us that we're not always right, but in fact that we can't be wrong. He shows us that our desires are not always holy and good. And that our righteousness, that we can be so proud of. It's filthy rags. Jesus shows us that we need, we are in need of a a good Savior. And that is exactly who Jesus is, our Savior. He is a good Savior who redeems people from their sin and offers hope of eternal life for those who repent and believe in him. This call to follow Jesus which is a call to repent and and believe in Jesus, moves us to have a humble heart uh, that looks to Christ as our authority in life rather than something else. The old kings of our our life that that ruled our hearts are are put away. And Jesus, the, the true king, is installed in his rightful place. And so now, rather than living a life for ourselves, we live a life in submission to the Lord. And this, so this truth is incredibly important in the history and the beginning of the Philippian church. Paul 
has received a, a new king and is living for Jesus, which then completely changes the course of his life. Now, instead of ravaging the church, uh, Paul goes on a mission to preach the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth, even to the Gentiles. And the Philippian church is the very first church planted in Europe. Uh, It is evidence that God is accomplishing his purpose with Paul and using him to preach to the Gentiles. The authority of Christ is evident in the beginning of of the Philippian church. If, if you read about the beginning of the Philippian church, it, it, you read through Acts 16, you'll see the authority of Christ in, in the life and direction of, of Paul. The Lord actually doesn't allow them to, to go where they were thinking that they were going to go, in, into Bithynia. And it's during that time that Paul receives a vision of a Macedonian man calling him and asking him to come preach in, in Macedonia. And so then because of this, they, they head their way to Macedonia and end up in the city of Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and it is a, a Roman colony. And so on, they, they're there and on the Sabbath day, they go out to uh, a river where they know there's supposed to be a, a place of, of prayer and they find that some women have, have gathered there together to pray and they speak with the women. And one woman in particular, Lydia, has her eyes opened by the Lord and is saved in her whole household as well. And so here we have the beginning of the Philippian church. And the Philippian church continues to grow as Paul and Silas, after meeting with Lydia and her conversion, Paul and Silas, they cast out a demon that's in a young girl and because of this, they're, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison, and while they're in prison, and they're shackled, they, they sing. And there's an earthquake that comes that breaks them free. And the jailer thinks that all of, all of his prisoners have, have run away, uh, and he's going to commit suicide. And Paul and Silas, they, they speak to him. They say that they haven't run away, and they introduce him to the Lord, and this jailer believes in Jesus. These are the first converts of the Philippian church. All these events took place because Jesus intervened in Paul's life. Jesus proved himself to be God and the true king of Paul's life. And now as Paul listens to and obeys Jesus, more and more people are coming to salvation in Christ. More people turning to the Lord in repentance and faith. They're receiving a new king and rejecting the former king who ruled their heart. And again, I I would ask you, who is the king of your life? Whose authority do you submit to? Jesus is a, a good king. He died on the cross to save sinners. Um, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
A servant of Christ receives Jesus as a new king and forsakes his old kings. Secondly, a servant of Christ receives a new identity and has a specific role to play in the church. A servant of Christ receives a new identity and has a specific role to play in the church. So Paul is writing to a very specific audience. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. To all the saints. Who are the saints? The word saint in our day is tainted by a lot of false misconceptions and even false teaching. When someone is called a saint, typically what someone is saying is that that person is a really good person, that they're more holy, more selfless, loving, giving, all these godly attributes. Um, that they're, they're more. Uh, this, the idea uh, behind this word saint comes from an incorrect teaching from the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church, actually, they have a, a list of things that need to happen in order for someone to become a saint, uh, which can't be uh, found in Scripture. They, they teach that, in order for someone to be a saint, a person has to be dead. So the process of becoming a saint usually waits about five years after the person has already passed away. So after five years, there's an investigation that goes on into their life to see if they can become a saint. This process of investigation, if it's accepted, means that the individual can be called a servant of God. And so there, there's a group of uh, people called the Congregation for the Causes of Saints uh, that takes a look at the evidence of the holiness of their life that's been investigated. And if this congregation approves of the person, they then pass their recommendation over to the Pope. And the Pope then decides if the person has had a life that can be characterized with a uh, holiness, a heroic virtue. And if they have, based upon his judgment, then they're called venerable. Uh, after someone is called venerable, which is to say that they have attained a certain degree of sanctity, uh, the next step is beatification, which is a declaration by the Pope that a person is in a state of happiness or being made blessed. Um, and the way that someone is declared to be beatified is if people pray to this deceased person for a miracle and the miracle happens. Uh, this is seen to be as evidence that this deceased person is in heaven and is able to intercede with God on behalf of those who are praying. Um, and then, in order to make complete canonization, which is to be declared a saint, a second miracle needs to be attributed to the deceased person. Um, this is quite the, the process, and it's, it's wrong. Um, who, who is Paul writing to in this letter? He writes 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul is not writing to people who have been dead for five years. He's writing to real, living, breathing people. And he calls them saints. So when we look at scripture, we see that biblically speaking, people can be saints and be alive at the same time. Um, the, the Catholic Church launches an investigation into the life of the person who has died to, to see if they've lived a life of holiness. Here's the reality. There is only one person who has lived a life of holiness. That person is Jesus Christ. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags in the sight of God. We do not need to try to find rest in our own works of righteousness, but instead we can find rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. If you have repented and believed in in Jesus Christ, then you have received the perfect life and obedience of Jesus. You have that full righteousness of Jesus applied to you. And there's no mystery for the Christian as to where they go after death. If you are saved, Christ has paid for all of your sins, there's no more payment to be made. If we were to say that there is yet another payment to be made in purgatory, then that is to diminish the the complete and finished work of Jesus. It was Jesus who declared on the cross, it is finished, and he's right. When a Christian passes away, they're brought into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And later on in, in Philippians, uh, in verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Christians who pass away are in the presence of the Lord. There, there is no more payment that needs to be made. Christ completely and totally paid for your sin. We can rest in that. Um, being in the presence of the Lord does not mean that people become the mediator between God and man. There is one mediator for us, and that is Christ Jesus. The, the Christian, the, the saints who have passed away, are in the presence of the Lord they don't, they're not that mediator between us and God. Uh, that's, that's the work of Christ. First uh, Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Why, so why is this conversation important? Um, about saints, uh, the false teaching of the saints, what, what we see Paul saying to all the saints. Um, it's important to know who you are. Um, if you have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus alone for salvation, 
You're a saint. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous in the sight of God. And this is not because of any works of your own, but completely because of the work of Christ on your behalf. If you have repented and believed in Jesus, you are a saint. Now, in light of this truth, it's important to to not let this go too far. We can get carried away with ourselves in our our pride. Uh, While it is true that uh, a Christian is a saint, that our sin has been washed away, uh, we have been declared righteous because of the work of Christ, we are still fighting sin in our life. We are saints who are fighting against the sin in our life. And, and Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Timothy 1.15, where he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul sees himself as the foremost of sinners. He does not say, I was the foremost of sinners, as if uh, he's thinking of the past. He says, I am the foremost, which is a present reality. Uh, Is it true that our identity is no longer in our sin, but in our Savior? Yes, this is true. Uh, and do not allow this to, to stir up a, a prideful heart where you think you're not sinful. Every person is at war to put sin to death in their life. And thanks be to God uh, for Jesus Christ who delivers us from our sin. So Paul is writing to all the saints in, in Philippi, which includes every believer, uh, but he also mentions the overseers and deacons. Every believer has a role to play in the church. Paul isn't just writing to overseers and deacons. He's writing to all the saints. And so, do the overseers and deacons have a specific role to play in the church? Yes, they do. Um, Do all the saints have a specific role to play in the church? Yes, they do. The overseers are to use their gift of shepherding and teaching in order to lead people towards Christ. This is a a huge responsibility that must be taken seriously. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Account is going to have to be given. And James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. The responsibility to shepherd and, and teach are responsibilities not to be taken lightly. The elders will, be, will have to give an account for shepherding and, and teaching. Um, I, I see this as um, both 
instruction and encouragement for, for Dana and I and uh, the elders to take seriously the call to shepherd and teach. Uh, this is a specific role uh, for overseers. The deacons are entrusted with matters of practical service within the church. Um, if you look at the qualifications of deacons and elders, there, there's really isn't too much of a difference. Uh, the elders need to be able to teach as their specific role to shepherd, but the deacons do not need to be able to teach. Um, that's, that's the difference. Uh, we have, we've recently gone through the role of elders and, deacon, and, and deacons, um, so I'm not going to go much further in depth in this, uh, but I do want to ask another question. What is the role of a saint in the church? Um, so saint refers to all believers. So what is the role of a believer in the church? Um, if you have your bulletin with you, take a, take a look at your bulletin a second. Open it up onto the, the announcement page there. there. There's a membership announcement there. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that little description as we talk about, uh, as we briefly talk about the, the role of a of a saint. It says, we believe that church membership is a biblical prescription that clarifies who is part of a local church and our responsibilities toward one another. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties, and we believe that the covenant has biblically been God's method for entering into agreement with his chosen people. Our desire is to enter into covenant with God and each other in order to Encourage and build one another up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Hold one another accountable to a life of godliness and Christian discipleship. And clarify the witness of our church to non-Christians. Okay, so this is the responsibility for everyone in the church to, to use the spiritual gifts that the Spirit has given you to to build up the church, to point each other to the Lord. We are to hold each other accountable to a life of godliness. Every person here needs loving accountability uh, as we gently and humbly confront sin in each other's lives in order that we would grow in holiness and more faithfully follow the Lord. Um, these responsibilities in the church require us to get to know each other. Uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to get to know each other um, so that you can encourage each other in the Lord, to hold each other accountable um, as we walk through life together. It's, it's hard to encourage someone if you don't know anything of what's going on in their life. It's also hard to come alongside someone and, and sharpen, sharpen them, hold them accountable if you don't know what's going on in each other's lives. Um, so I want to encourage you guys to continue to, to get to know each other, that we may build each other up and sharpen each other to become more like Christ. And not only this, but we have a responsibility to witness to those who have not believed in Jesus. 
We have a call to evangelize, to proclaim the good news of, of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners like, like you and me um, by dying on the cross for our sin and, and rising from the grave. This good news of the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And we, the church, are the ones who are commissioned to go and do that. We have the good news of the gospel. People who are serving an earthly master, they can hear the good news of Jesus and, by God's grace, turn away from their, their old king, this old earthly master, and turn towards Christ, who is a, a good master, who forgives, offers salvation, offers hope. So a servant of Christ receives a new identity and has a specific role to play in the church. And third, a servant of Christ receives grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and offers this grace and peace to others. A servant of Christ receives grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and offers this grace and peace to others. As Christians, as saints, we are recipients of the grace and peace that come from God. How are we recipients of grace and peace of God? Well, so, did we deserve salvation in any way? No. Did we earn any possibility of salvation? No. The, the salvation that is provided to us is completely because of the grace of God. And this is specifically so that none of us can boast about it. We can't boast in ourselves about our salvation. Instead, our salvation has nothing to do with our own ability. We can only look to God and, and praise him for his abundant grace towards us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let us boast in the Lord. What is the peace of God? To answer this question, I'd like to direct you to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, says this, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." Do you see the peace that is offered to us in the gospel? We were once children of wrath. And being children of wrath, we were not at peace with God. We were at war with him. And the penalty for sin is death. But instead of receiving the penalty of death, those who repent and believe 
You can have peace with God. We are made alive in Christ. No longer under the wrath of God, but under his grace and care. God not only provides us with grace, but provides us with, with peace with him. Now, since we have experienced the grace and peace from God, we are now able to show grace and peace to others. Do grace and peace mark your relationships? Christian, you have received grace and peace from God. How can we not give grace and peace to others? Your sin has been completely washed clean. So now when, when someone sins against you, you're able to forgive them in grace. Just like Christ forgave you. When you're feeling tempted to not be gracious, think about the grace that God has given to you. When you're being tempted to go to war with someone over, over something, be reminded of the peace that God has given to you. And as we show grace and peace to each other, we will be reminding each other and pointing each other back to the Lord who first loved us. We'll be reminding each other of, of the gospel. A servant of Christ receives grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and offers this grace and peace to others. Paul, with his greeting to the Philippian church, recognizes that he is a servant of Jesus. He recognizes that those who are saved by Jesus are, are saints. And each member of the church has a specific role to play. And he's excited about speaking about the grace and peace that comes from God that affects the lives of, of the people that the Lord has saved. So who is it that you serve with your life? The gospel transforms our life by tearing down our, our old masters as we receive Jesus Christ, the true and good master. And in being saved by God, we're, we're given the righteousness of Jesus so that our identity is no longer in our sin, but in, rather in Jesus Christ. And now we're able to rejoice in the grace and peace that God has, has provided to us and to show that same grace and peace to others. As I, as I look at these truths, I'm reminded of the, the humility of, of Jesus. Um, Matthew twenty twenty eight says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, in his humility, became a servant for you in order that you would have life. Jesus, in his humility, became sin for you in order that you might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus, in his humility, offers grace and provides 
peace. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's, let's rejoice in this truth. And may we never forget the God who, who we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we are we're amazed by your grace. We're amazed that you would take people like us, and, and Paul's a, a great uh, picture, reminder, that, that we were a people who were at war with you. We were striving against you. And yet, in your grace, you confront us. You expose our hearts and draw us to yourself. And Lord, we're thankful that we can, we can serve you, who is a, you are a, a good master. Lord, I ask that as we, as we look at our life, that you would open our eyes to any uh, false authorities, uh, false uh, kings in our life that we are submitting to, that those idols of our hearts would be knocked down by, by your grace and that uh, Jesus would uh, be on the throne of our heart that it would be Jesus who rules our life. Lord, we're amazed um, by the peace that you offer us. Lord, I I ask that our lives would be marked by grace and and peace as we uh, live life as, as your church, that we would build each other up in you, that we'd point each other towards you remind each other of of the gospel. And not only that, but that we'd also be your hands and feet in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the lost world around us. Lord, we're, we're so grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen.